thanks so much. Uh, I'm Greg Clayman from Vimeo. Um, here to moderate this, and I guess you guys just sit wherever makes you comfortable. Um, stay in order. And uh, a little, a little bit about uh, who we were lucky enough to have today. Uh, Gillian Jacobs, right here, uh, to my left, from the funniest comedy on television, obviously Community on uh, NBC, and also. Um, appearing in a film uh, right here, um, which apparent Life Partners, which yes. has been well received, um, and uh, Walk of Shame, which is coming out on May 2nd, and of course, Hot Tub Time Machine 2 um, for Christmas, and a whole bunch of other stuff that we're going to hear, uh, <laughs> that, that we are going to hear about. Uh, Jason, is sitting right over there. Uh, to her left, the commissioning editor for, what is this, commissioning editor for opinion video at the New York Times, but you're the OpDocs guy. Right. It's sort right. of how that's one of my main things. Right. <laughs> which, which is which is what we'll hear about OpDocs, um, uh, short opinion documentaries of independent filmmakers um, that has won more awards than uh, I think I could possibly mention uh, in, in one place, um, but has become really a, a, a primary destination for short documentaries online, uh, which is also very cool. Um, Morgan Spurlock, um, who a uh, writer, director, producer of long form of short form of television currently on uh, CNN and um, in, uh, inside men supersized me to lots of other things that you've seen really lucky to have you here and last but not least uh, Dan Silver <laughs> um, woo, uh, who is director of development yes and he's a Tribeca and ESPN sports films um, helping to scout and develop new documentary and short film projects, uh, and also works in the 30 for 30 short series, uh, which we will talk more about as well. Um, but before we talk, uh, it wouldn't be uh, a panel if we didn't show <coughs> video. Um, so we have a short video that highlights some of the work from everyone we have here. And if we could run that. Shorts artfully crafted by Blue Moon Brewing Company. A lot of people don't have that vision to see things that are different. How do you describe indescribable pain? It had all the makings of a happily ever after story. Those last few minutes I spent with some of the most powerful in my life. Whatever it takes to get there, I will do. Original short films only online. For more, go to ESPN.com/slash 30 for 30/slash shorts. I still don't understand why you need the assistance of a tiny detective agency. Tiny is the key word. Earlier today, country's nuclear launch codes were stolen by this man, an extremely tiny assassin. This little tiny man strikes fear in my heart. It must be stopped. If I, Cesar Pequeno, have to rule the world, I'm coming for you, Pequeno! <laughs> you want me to kill the only person who's like me? There's nothing like you. He's pure evil. And he is... He's like a little bit taller. And he's rich. <laughs> he's really rich. He's a criminal mastermind. except anybody that wants to in our field could go on and become their own school. I would never have expected to be performing at Amateur Night. Something I've wanted for a long time. Since I was a little kid, it's been my dream. Fear I faced is very simple. It's the fear of failure. Failure? Failure. Are you dying to know how to make your own sausage at home? No? 
Well, today, we're going to teach you anyway. We're going to teach you how to find the right shirt to go with the right tie. It works your thighs, your core, shoulders, back, and tries. Those are some of my favorite muscles. <laughs> I lost my virginity to my now wife. I love it. Which is pretty cool. He's a good-looking guy, but I can't describe David Hasselhoff. Ew. Well, the one thing I do remember from it is when we were done, she said, thank you. People that are crossing our border illicitly are dying. No, fight's never been over. We still are not being treated equal. American citizens now live in the surveillance state. That's been my philosophy. Always say yes. If you put any event under a microscope, you will find incredible things going on. A cautionary tale. So, you know, the uh, short-form content, I guess, has really been around since the, the birth of film, right? With, from our gang and newsreels and, and all of the original uh, animated shorts kind of died a bit of a, a, a bit of a death with the birth of television when there weren't really venues for that. But as the Internet has exploded and bandwidth has, has increased um, with the advent of you know, YouTube and Vimeo and mobile phones, um, we're seeing an explosion of short-form content um, and filmmakers and, and creative people um, who are choosing that as a, as a uh, medium to tell their stories. And I wanted to start, Morgan, with you, if that's all right. Sure. The, um, you know, I was sort of joking about it earlier, but you, uh, you work in film, you work in television, uh, Warrior Poets, uh, which we, we saw a whole bunch of shorts over there. I'm wondering, um, from a, a, starting from a creative perspective, yeah. um, how you see some of the differences between the different mediums and the stories you tell. Well, I mean, I think there's, there's the stories that are, are made to be feature-length movies. And there's stories that should be television-length, you know, projects that should be 45 to 60 minutes. And sometimes a lot of filmmakers try to stretch those into features, and they shouldn't. And then there's and then there are stories that are perfect and fantastic in like a three to five minute segment, and that's where that story should live. And and one of the things that we've always tried to do, and what I really believe in, is you need to explore that creative process, and you shouldn't stretch things longer than they should be. And what's happened now is there's real avenues and venues where you can take these, whether it be OpDocs or whether it be ESPN or whether it be you know places like Yahoo, AOL, etc. There's places people are realizing that this kind of what, what's called like snackable content is valuable, and that people will keep coming back to watch it. And that's and, and as a creative storyteller, that's what you want. You, know, you want to tell as many stories as you can as often as you can. And how much do, do you then? I mean, you mentioned there's lots of different places to take it. Um, how much do you think about the distribution of that, for example, from day one? From, from the minute we have an idea, we are, we're already thinking about where could this go. Um, because I think that, you know, especially as a content creator, I think that especially living and working in today's business world, you have to have an understanding of how the business works and how it functions. And you can't just come up with an idea and say, great, we're going to make it and then take it out. I feel like that world has shifted. You know, the, the days of I'm going to make a feature-length film and go to Sundance, you know, there's still those movies you can do that with. But I think you have to have a vision of where you want this to live and where ultimately it can live financially, physically, reality, you know, I think that uh, you have to be thinking about that from the beginning. And do you work on all of those sort of simultaneously? I mean, I basically, like Warrior Poets, for example. Yeah. You know, is there, is there the sort of short-form folks who work on the short-form stuff? And then there's like the, you know... I, no, I just, I just have, I, we just have like three, whatever hat we're wearing, like at the time. So it's like, I'll put on my short-form hat, and now we're going to work on short-form, and then I change it, and I put on like my TV hat, and we work on that, and then we put on our film hat. Uh, I mean, we're working on these things simultaneously, um, whether it be a television project where we have multiple TV projects that are going on at any given moment, um, films that are in various stages of development, and short form, which is constant. You know, con short form is happening all the time. And I imagine you're approached uh, more and more by the distribution entities themselves. AOL will come to you, or Yahoo, or whomever, and say, what do you got? I mean, well, they, I think in the beginning they did. Like, we did Hulu's very first... For Hulu's very first foray into original content we did, which was A Day in the Life, right. and that was the very first show they ever made. Who, um, Yahoo's first kind of you know, jump into, into nonfiction and doing non-scripted shows was us doing Failure Club, you know, where we could follow people for a year as they kind of chased their dreams and went after things they were too afraid to do. Um, you, but follow, what, you followed people for a year. For a year. Yeah. We shot that for a year. You know, when, when we met with Yahoo, they said, we want to do stuff that, that television networks wouldn't do, something that's bigger than, than anyone else. And television networks were afraid of a show like that because of the production schedule and how long we were going to be following people for. And they were like, that's exactly what we want to make. And I mean, it was, it, you know, kudos to them. I mean, it was an expensive show, but it was, it was fantastic. 
But um, you know, the, but now everybody has realized the value of creating the short form content. You know, when you look at the stars that are now doing short form content, I mean, you're getting real A list celebrities who are coming in saying. I want to do this because it's cool. I get to be, I get to flex my creative muscles. You know, there's not as much pressure on, you know, a network where you have to get a certain number every single week or they're going to cancel the show. Things are done at a certain price point. You can have a little more fun. And, and basically the networks, whether it be a Yahoo, an AOL, or a Hulu, want to give you that creative flexibility. That's what's enticing about it. And, and the other thing is, as a creator, you get ownership. Like for me to come in and own from day one 50% of my IP or more mm -hmm. is valuable. Yeah. Well, speaking of A-list celebrities coming in and doing short-form content. Well, hello, A-list celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, tell us about Tiny Commando. How did uh, that come about? Yeah, Tiny Commando, which I didn't even speak in that clip, but I assure you that I'm actually <laughs> she's, in it. She's in it. I'm in it. And she's um, really funny. Uh, so Ed Helms uh, loves remote-controlled vehicles, and that is the genesis of that. I'm sorry. Yes. That's where that came That's from? That's where that came from. Ed Helms has had a lifelong love of remote-controlled vehicles and came up with a concept to base a web series around those. So, um, and then everything else fell naturally into yes. place, of course. It's, that's the way to do things, people. Just come up with a gadget that you love. Um, yeah, so he, uh, he came up with this concept, which was about a tiny army commando, and I was like his girl Friday. And um, yeah, it was awesome because we got so many incredible guest stars. I think you saw like Nick Kroll and Rob yeah. Corddry and Brett Gelman and Thomas Lennon, and all these people would come in because it was just basically a day commitment for them. And so I got to work with this whole wide swath of people that I really admire and had always wanted to work with. And Zach Levi, you know, who plays the Tiny Commando, is obviously incredible. And um, it's it's really fun. There were no notes. There were no, you know, studio representatives on set saying, please don't do that or say that. And But it was also, like, kind of lighthearted and fun. It was not, you know, an edgy show, but it was also... Something that I don't think really would exist on a on a on a network. So um, for me, that's the sort of thing I want to do. You know, I, I was telling you backstage, I did a a short film that uh, went to South by Southwest last year, and it screened, and it got a really amazing response. And I kept running into the director around LA, and I'd say, "What are you going to do with it? Where are you going to put it? Where are you going to do with it?" And he's like, "I don't know what. I don't know. Nothing's quite right." And um, Tim Heidecker, who with his partner Eric Wareheim have the show, Tim and Eric, awesome show, great job. I knew they had um, started a YouTube channel with Michael Sarah and, and Sarah Silverman called Jash. So I sent the short to um, Tim Heidecker and he passed along to Jash and they really liked it and they put it online. So it was really fun to get to actually go from, oh, it screened once at a film festival to it's online, anyone can see it. It's called It's Not You, It's Me, it's on Jash. Um, and I'm really proud of it. And um, to me, that's as exciting as you know anything else I do. How, how long did it, uh, was the process of shooting the show? Months. Around? I mean, because there was a lot of actually production on that. There were a lot of special effects. Not to give too much away, but I kill a lot of people in the short film. So they actually had to do a lot of post on it. Um, you had exploding pastries, I recall. Did I? No, you, you did in the show. There were exploding. Oh yeah, in this a, one. There was a muffin. That, in this one, yeah. I was stabbing a lot of people. I remember and. <laughs> There's a lot of blood, a lot of squirting blood, and um, shoving people into suitcases. Um, it's really fun. Um, but yeah, it was, so it was kind of a long process from when we shot it to when it uh, screened itself by, and then another couple months before it went on. Um, but I, that's, a, you know, that's, that's the sort of thing I want to do going forward. Is And we were also talking earlier about the sort of direct connection to audiences. I mean, the community yeah. fans, for example, and the kind of content that you guys make, uh, be it short-form content or Twitter content or what yes. have you, around the show that continue to get people engaged. Yeah, so I feel like um, because we don't have the most advertisement for my show, um, you know, it's kind of fallen upon us um, to promote the show via Twitter, so I think consequently we've always had a very engaged fan base because right from the beginning all of us actors were online tweeting yes. about the show, engaging with fans, and... Um, it kind of took on a life of its own. We had this very throwaway joke in the second season of our show about the character Abed um, loves the show The Cape that was very short-lived on NBC, and, and Joel McHale's character says, you know, it's going to last six episodes, and Abed says, six seasons in a movie. And after the fans watched that episode, they, started, they created that into a hashtag, which then became a sort of 
prophecy for the show. It's now our goal. It's become like a thing that Sony is actually trying to make happen. You know, um, just this last week, every day at, at 3 p.m., they released a different fake movie poster for our show on a different <laughs> TV website, and we tweeted every day about it. And um, so it, you know, it, and the the amount of fan art that our fans have created, um, they. I could go on and on. Please shut me up. Um, uh, so one year, we were supposed to premiere on October 19th, and then NBC pulled us off the schedule, and I said to the, to the writers and the directors, like, we should create something, some content that will premiere on October 19th because the fans have been counting down to this date for months. They've been you know, holding out hope, right. and now we don't even know when it will be. So they liked the idea, and we shot this little short um, all about how October 19th is in your heart because <laughs> October 19th is when community premieres, but that can really be any day because it's really in your heart. And so we released that. Um, and it was also my birthday, so it was, like, uh, sentimental for me additionally. And so um, we created this content, and we put it online, and the fans really loved it. And so it was, that was really fun for me, too, because it's, like, often as an actor on a show, you don't really have a huge hand in the development of the show but to have an idea and to pitch it to them and have them go for it and the um, audiences respond to it and I think actually the last uh, poster that they premiered was October 19th for a fake community like Friday the 13th trailer so it lives on um, yeah it's been a it's been a really fun exciting part of the show that I don't think any of us anticipated when we premiered that's awesome I mean the the, the um you know, when you think about TV shows or series that have uh, moved over and become shorts as well, 30 for 30 is a great example, Dan. The, the, um, so you've got people making, you know, filmmakers, well-known filmmakers making documentary films about subjects that are near and dear to their hearts that they've been involved in uh, in the sports world. Um, and then, I guess, two years ago, is that right? Yeah. Um, you started a shorts version of that. Um, I'd love if you to talk a little bit about what 30, 30, 30 for 30 is overall, but also kind of how you ended up making that transition into shorts and why sure well to start documentary filmmaking is really hard <laughs> and it's time consuming as morgan can attest um to do morgan's got all the time in the world that's right. <laughs> that's right. i'm a robot that's right it's fine <laughs> it's for us to do a 30 for 30 and the 30 for 30s that work really well are the ones that are really passion uh, passion driven Right. Uh, a director or a storyteller or, um, or even an athlete comes in and says, this is the story that I've been dying to tell. It's sort of just, I'm, I'm, it's oozing out of me. And that's where you get the specific point of view. That's where you get the kernel where you can sort of drill down into that moment in time. And, but it's a commitment. I mean, to even to do 50 minutes of television, which translate into our 60-minute uh, window, it could be months. And not everybody... And not every filmmaker, not every person who does a 30 for 30 has almost a year of their life to give up. And we deal on the passion, and it's great that people want to work with us to sort of communicate that passion. And what we started seeing is this balance. And a lot of the stuff that I've been hearing from Morgan and Gillian is interesting because I started seeing fil uh, short films at film festivals where I would never see them again. Where do they go? Right. Um, I would, um, all of these things that I hear from you guys is, oh, okay, okay, we might be going in the right direction here. Some of the stories didn't warrant 50 minutes. So, I mean, one of the examples that we always talked about was, wouldn't it be great to do a piece on the history of the Arnold Palmer, the drink? Trying to get 50 minutes out of that. <laughs> I mean, that's, it's, it's hard. But that's an interesting sports story because Arnold Palmer is one of the most legendary golfers out there and he created this drink and it sustains itself and people who don't even know who Arnold Palmer is walk into a restaurant and say, I'll have an Arnold Palmer, so why? So, and then we other, had other ideas that just felt like we, uh, something that I say ad nauseum is if I can hear Ira Glass introduce it, <laughs> it feels like something that we should be doing as a short. So it's, it's like... That should be all of our guiding right, principles. Right? I mean... If, what would Ira do? Well, that, that's sort of what it is, and it would be great to work with him. Um, but another one was, like, Wilt Chamberlain was a bellhop up at Kutcher's in uh, the Catskills, and there's, like, him serving these um, mojitos. I don't know if they serve those in Kutcher's, but just walking past all these yentas, and they loved him, and that's not 50 minutes. That could be a tiny act of a Wilt Chamberlain piece, but that's an interesting short story. So that's sort of how we tackled it, which is if you bring over the quality that we spend and the attention that we spend and the, how serious we take it from a 30 for 30 perspective and apply that to short 
form content, short films, then there's something interesting here. And then we start getting into the fun stuff, which is, as Morgan said, which is the distribution. And that really is the fun part of it all. I mean, I'm not going to say the filmmaking is easy. It's not. But when you figure out you've got this great piece of content and how you get it in front of the right audience with social out there, it's, it, it's really a lot of fun. So the trend, it, I wouldn't exactly call it a transition from the, the larger 30 for 30 to the shorter 30 for 30s. They are 30 for 30s. It's just we now view 30 for 30s as either 7 to 14 minutes or longer. And we've done 30 for 30 shorts that are now even clocking in. It's the exception, but at 22 minutes that don't fall into 7 to 14 minutes. So it's what the story deserves. Are you, are you commissioning them? Are you sort of, like, how is it that you find the ones to do and the people to do them? Well, there are, there are, there are two ways. Um, I would say 90% of the time it's people who dig what we do and say, I really want to tell this story. And again, those are the ones that we want to do. But then we're huge fans. And when we look on social and see how people reply, respond to what we're doing or we see something that someone's doing, we say, Have you, what, what's your idea? And then it's a conversation. I mean, we always like to say that we're sitting, on a, sitting at a bar across from another sports fan and we're just talking about sports and if that story pops up we sort of drill down into it and then subconsciously at the end of it the person's like oh my god I just pitched a 30 for 30 to you I didn't even know it <laughs> um, so I would say that other 10% is me and some other super fans over at ESPN following Twitter and going well we have this Twitter account and Danny Pudi on yeah. Community is a really big 30 for 30 fan he talks about us so we DM him we go hey thanks for loving 30 for 30 you ever think about doing one and then it's just, oh, my God, really? Here's my email address. And we started communicating, and he had a short uh, that premiered last month and that got into Sundance. It was his first film that he'd ever done, but he had the right story, the right passion. I mean, he got what we did, and now we're working with Ken Jeong. Yeah. We're trying to get everybody in community to do a third. <laughs> which one, which um, one are you going to do? Well, <laughs> I actually had an idea this morning. I didn't want to be so gauche as to pitch you, but hey, now I'm uh, backstage. I'll talk to you. No, it was amazing, That's too. Because Danny was um, shooting community, and he got this interview, and he had to fly to, like, I think, North Carolina to yeah. get this one interview. And our, shoe, our show's shooting schedule is so bananas crazy time, but they worked it out, and Danny, like, went from the set to the airport to do the interview, and there's like a, there was like five seconds of it. It's called Untucked. You have to watch it. It's about um, Marquette basketball uniforms, and it was so great to see Danny, you know, because he's such a huge Marquette fan, basketball fan. It was so wonderful. We're so proud of him. So was I. He yeah. took it so seriously. And to see yeah. him, I, I it got into Sundance, and I was sort of standing in the back with another one of my coworkers, and to see, first of all, he's got a beautiful smile. He's a lovely guy. But to see him standing on the red carpet, smiling about a film that he produced, it was the first thing that he directed, I was like, that's great, because so it's cool. sports. And yeah. I was so happy to, that we, collectively at ESPN, were able to give him an opportunity. Because so, thus far, he's that's been so narrow in his, his creative pursuits. Stifled. It's so, so nice yeah. to be able to bring Iconic him Iconic TV character, you know, digital content. No. But there's something about being a fan that's different. I mean, you can be, he would, as Gillian said, he's such a hardcore Marquette fan that it would be like me saying, yeah, Dan, just go do 90 minutes on Jim Henson. I'm like, sure. That would be a lot different than me saying, well, what do you want? This is a job. That's sort of the, the line that we draw. I just added myself as a Muppet fan. I, I was going to say, I, 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 I could get you 14 minutes on Jim Henson. I would produce that. Uh, well, so Jason, the, the um, uh, another, it's funny because you, you guys both sort of have different different uh, uh, takes on short-form documentaries online. Um, and you guys at OpDocs are, it's very interestingly, out of the editorial department at, at the New York Times. And I'm curious how that came to be, how, you, how OpDocs started. Sure. Well, I guess some of this other work has come from TV going online. For us, it's more a newspaper going online. Um, and when I started at the company nearly three years ago, the question was, what should the opinion section do with video? This is kind of the big open question, because the opinion section is so popular among readers, you know, like Thomas Friedman and Paul Krugman, and then the op-ed page where we have Vladimir Putin and you know, very influential figures writing. Um, there was the question, could we do something similar in video? So the idea was, let's create a forum for filmmakers, like the op-ed page has been a forum for writers and influential figures. And 
I think it's working. It, it kind of makes sense because, as, as you said, there's not much of a destination. Like, if you make a great little film, often you don't know where to go with it. And this has been a persistent problem to have a destination and to have an audience that really cares about quality, interesting, you know, meaningful, provocative work. So what I've been fortunate with is we have the whole New York Times audience. And we can slip in these very interesting films by people who, in the documentary world, might be very important figures. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I think we've worked with five Oscar winners. But online, for our general audience, they've never heard of any of these people. And all they care about is interesting, meaningful work. And we can surprise our, you know, our readers and show them what the New York Times can be in this new era. And they're also, I, I, the, some of the ones I've seen are very uh, creative in terms of impressionistic, in terms of artistic. They're not necessarily always the most straightforward, like, and here's a story that I'm telling. There's, there's one, um, my brother Teddy, mm-hmm. which is a recent one, which is, uh, it's a, a young girl and uh, who's got to be six or seven and her brother, they're, they're my kid's age, which is why I wept like a baby, <laughs> I, like a baby watching this thing. Because um, the, the the kid is like three and has cerebral palsy, and the girl is seven. And it's 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 like it's a poem. I mean, it's a prose yeah. poem, and it is unbelievable. Yeah, um, because we're because Opdocs is part of the opinion section. We have all this creative uh, freedom, and and we encourage filmmakers to do really creative, distinctive work. And this was a scenario where the filmmaker is the mother of um, a, a boy with cerebral palsy, and she had made a film which is maybe 35 minutes long that was at Doc NYC. Really challenging film that I think would be very hard to distribute. And I invited her to adapt a short out of that. And having watched it, it, it just seemed like an interesting idea that we talked through. Let's just do something from the perspective of a little girl about her love for the brother. Mm-hmm. So there's no, um, there's no real exposition there about what is cerebral palsy. It's just the pure love of this girl and her kind of uh, innocence, not knowing what's going to happen to her brother as he grows older. I'm, I'm glad you liked that one. Oh, God, it was beautiful. Um, you've done a lot of these, too. I mean, how many? Yeah, um, Monday will be 111. Wow. Wow. So, <laughs> wow. Cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, we're doing around one a week. One a week. So, okay, so what's your process? And why can't you get up to one a week? 30 minutes? We're, we're, we're working on it. Come on, Silver. Come on, Silver. Let's go. Let's go. Calling people out. Literally, dude. I, was, I, did, I, I kind of looked like Tom Cruise at the start of this whole thing. I mean, I'm gray. I'm like something like this. Oh. Slow your roll. Some of those are very, very short, though. I they're really... I'm sorry. Um, it sounds like a lot to most people, but when I look at my print colleagues, we have two pages a day to put out um, with the editorial page and the op-ed page. I, I feel like a slacker. <laughs> so one a week, I feel like, is, is like luxurious. But um, what's nice is we don't have to publish um, on any arbitrary date. So... Um, I feel lucky to not be on TV in that way. If it's not ready, we won't we won't publish it. But I go to festivals or markets around once a month and, and meet with filmmakers, and we um, take pitches from the public. Actually, this is a very, very important part. If anyone wants to pitch us, you can, and I can give you a little card afterwards. Like the print op-ed section, we invite public submissions because we really want this to be the public voice. And we commission pieces from scratch, and we uh, it's a mix of also a small number of acquisitions of totally finished pieces, but most of the work is unique to us so the the uh, you know sometimes I think there's a perception that uh, short form content means you know small budgets, right that it's like, oh well yeah, you know my my iPhone has a camera, and you know these lights look great, and well you know but you know you're talking about uh, months you know of yeah. production, you're talking about acquisitions of you know of multiple titles, I mean, just a question for all of you guys. Uh, do, do you find that to be true? Do you find actually you, you can do more for less? Or, you know, to get the quality that you, that audiences expect, it, it doesn't it doesn't matter what the sort of media is. It's still going to be pricey and time-consuming. People can work very cheaply now. I think the biggest concern is that documentary <coughs> filmmaking, all filmmaking should be professionalized. So I don't like it for people to just do 
to feel like overextended. Yeah. I was an independent filmmaker before, and I know how hard it is to make a living doing it. But I think the reality is, in short form, we can encourage very cheap, innovative work. Like Casey Neistat's one of the mm -hmm. filmmakers we've sure. worked with. Yeah. Yeah, and, right. you know, he just can bang something out, and uh, it's, it could not exist in any other form. There's no reason why it should cost more than, you know. Yeah, then the, yeah, the effort that he puts in, the sweat equity he puts into right. it. Yeah. Right. But then again, there should be a, a way to do entertainment, which yeah. is very expensive. Well, like my friend Drew Wade, who was the DP on Danny's short, is incredibly talented, and you could give him one light and a camera, and it would look incredible. And I think Danny's piece is really beautiful. So I think it's about finding the right people who are excited and wanting to do it. They're excited about the project, so they're willing to do it for no money, you know. Like Tiny Commando, even though it was Yahoo and everything, we didn't have a lot of money, you know. So we actually shot one day at a former chemical factory, and they said um, they put our hair and makeup into this room, and they said if you start to feel dizzy or um, have a bout of vertigo, maybe you want to exit this room because we had a spill in here, and you look down and there's this giant stain on the carpet. Like perhaps we should move before we all start vomiting. But um, I think when you're excited about the project, you're you know as an actor, you're willing to forego the trailer and the amenities and everything. Yeah, and it, I think it depends on the project, you know, on whatever what it is. We did this incredible film series uh, last year that GE basically paid for the whole thing called Focus Forward. Focus Forward, yeah, yeah, which which um, you know we did with our company Cinelon. Cinelon is very much focused on doing short form film content, um, short form doc or hybrid content. And each one of those pieces, you know, we had 30 amazing filmmakers, um, you know, make films for this. It's a good number. It was good. It was a good number. It was a good number. It was a good number. So we had 30 filmmakers um, make films that uh, each one of them were three minutes long. The budgets for each of them were anywhere between twenty and $30,000. And so, I mean, it was, you know, it was good money to make, you know, a two to three minute, or to make a three minute film. Um, and now we have a new series that we're working on through Cinelon that we're going to announce soon where it's, you know, more money, you know, but still focusing on a three to five minute film. That I think is uh, again, it's but it's you know it's, it's how do you increase the quality? How do we increase? How do you increase the? Because now there is an expectation. That's the other right. thing. Right. Is now as more great stuff comes online, it can't look like you shot it with an iPhone, and it can't look like you only had kind of you know one camera and a light. People are expecting a level of quality. Um, you know, Netflix is ruining it for everybody <laughs> as they're spending you know hundreds of millions of dollars making great stuff online. Um, but you know, there is a bar that's being raised that. You have to find a balance. Now, right. how do we spend more money at a price point that is still going to be equitable, that's still going to make sense, but is going to deliver a level of quality and content to us and to viewers where we're going to feel like we're getting what we paid for or that we're getting what we expect? Right. The other side to that, I find, in what we look at at the shorts, is it's specificity. That's right. Because it, in a lot of ways, doing a shorter piece is harder because you don't have a lot of room to hide. You could have a 50-minute piece and... That point may not be paid off that well. It may have a little bit of a hole, but if you hit them right off of the cut, you're into another point, they're like, and they forget about it. But in seven minutes, in 14 minutes, you don't have anywhere to hide. So yeah. it's really about working to figure out exactly what you want to tell, exactly how you're going to tell it, and finding that through line. We find a lot when we talk to filmmakers, it's in a lot of ways when you hear 30 for 30, you're like, I'm going to make this big, broad, two Escobar sprawling story. And you're like, you're working in 14 minutes. So it's like, well, what is specifically that you're going to be talking about? And whatever it is has to serve that. You can have four characters, but those, there needs to be one primary almost. I'm not saying that there's a formula, but what that person says needs to be served by the other people. Mm -hmm. That's right. And mm -hmm. if those people aren't talking about that key point or that key person, then you're just going in another direction. So it's really about working on the front end. They're docs, they're living, they sort of, they change. But it's about having a clear intention going into it and then what you're ultimately trying to achieve in the editing room. And that's how I think you can work with budgets. Mm -hmm. it's, if it's not serving that point, it doesn't belong. That's right. Yeah, to, to, uh, to go back to distribution for a second, what's interesting, 30 by 30 lives on the ESPN website, right? That's, that's no, no, no. No, 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 no. It lives online. And I can explain that without <laughs> completely co-opting this panel. <laughs> um, for us, it was, we looked at the way that we were consuming stuff. Just consuming, if I'm watching, for a guy who likes going to the Ziegfeld to see the new big movie, I like the big screen. If I'm now watching on a commute home, a trailer on my phone, I'm consuming video differently. So it was very important to us, and we have, we're a small division as part of a ginormous company, 
And they are always forward-thinking. We have the privilege of using an amazing player, that is our own player, that can be embedded into a, a tweet, that can live across a lot of our platforms. So we actually don't say that these live on Grantland. We don't say they live on mm -hmm. the 30 for 30 website. When they premiere, they premiere. And if you Google it, you may get four or five links that this is on Grantland, this is on the SPN video player. We, this short that we premiered this past week was the first time we were in our Sports Center app, <laughs> which is a big one for us. That's cool. We've now been on Watch ESPN. The idea is that these need to live. It, I don't want the experience of going to a film festival and never seeing a short again. They need to be everywhere. And we are, we owe it to our filmmakers for the work that they do to try to sustain awareness on these things as much as possible. And do you want, do you want your pieces, do you, is part of that, is that mission is to get them on an AOL or on a New York Times, to get them out into places like that, which ultimately don't serve the mothership in the same way? I think over time, I yeah. think over time it's a discussion to be had, but right now what we're, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's to the quality of the filmmaking, but once we premiere a short, yeah. BuzzFeed, IndieWire, they're all taking right, it. Right. They're taking yeah. it, so they're doing the work for it's, us, and that's fantastic. This yeah. is a similar thing yeah. we've, we've discovered where we're pushing out. The, the New York Times homepage is a great property, and, when we, and all the opt-ops go on the front page of nytimes.com, but we also have a Hulu channel and mm -hmm. a YouTube channel and now AOL. Vimeo. You have a Vimeo channel. <laughs> we work the Vimeo channel. Thank you for the staff picks. <laughs> That's the best. That's better than the homepage. Uh, but, um, it, no, it, it's it's so important because uh, social media ultimately is driving. When a, when a video does go viral, usually social media has a major part, and you can tell if you monitor Twitter feeds. I can tell by a certain point in the morning that this one is going to be a tremendous yep. hit. Although sometimes it takes the second day before it really catches on. But the people, the people are finding it off the site. Off yeah. of my and it's, it's an interesting challenge. I mean, certainly one that we hear from uh, filmmakers who create uh, shorts or, or, frankly, even full-end features where you know, the, the platform of the New York Times, right, or of you know, community on television or, or AOL or Yahoo or, um, or Hulu, ESPN, like it, it's a great platform, you know. And so when you sort of, you know, to your point, and when you premiere something, you know, it goes off across all of those. Harder when you're an individual person, you know. And you know, we've seen, uh, I think we've all seen a lot of people who sort of will take something and they'll put it online, and they're like, right. "There, I've created this, and now it's on YouTube," you know. And then they just wait, you know. And that's that's difficult. That's like. Yeah. 15 right. views. Yeah. yeah. 15 yeah. views. <laughs> and that was me checking it 14 times. That's yeah, right, totally. exactly. <laughs> it's, sad, it's sad, though. Sometimes you see incredible work on YouTube that just has like a few hundred views, like an Oscar-winning short. Yeah. I've seen an Oscar-winning short that just has like a few thousand views. And uh, note to filmmakers, do not put your work on YouTube <laughs> um, if you're serious about distributing it. Don't put it on without shopping it because... We have a policy that we cannot take it if it's already been published anywhere. And um, this happens sometimes where there's incredible work, and we see it, and it only has like 500 views, but still we can't take it anymore. That's a good note. What about um, monetization? What about the money part of it? You know, in terms of uh, ad-supported versus premium um, versus uh, uh, brand, uh, branded or, or brand entertainment. I mean, the, the new fronts. Uh, <laughs> our, our next uh, our next week. It's funny. I, I first saw Tiny Commando a year ago. Yes. Um, at the Yahoo New Front, um, and you know th these are these are the, the online events of the broadcast up online version of the broadcast upfronts, um, where everyone that we've been talking about plus um, you know plus Vice and Buzzfeed and and uh, and up and down. Uh, yours is on Monday, um, Monday morning at nine. I'll be going to that one. Um, but you know, th th these are the, 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 the events where all the different platforms sort of uh, roll out their, their shows and their programming uh, to get advertisers to then buy them. Um, you know, what's, what's interesting, uh, of course, on air is that there's a, there's a limited amount of programming, right? There's a limited amount of, of, of slots. There's a sort of a, 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 a um, you know, an audience for that, whatever that audience uh, may be. And so um, there's the upfront makes sense because. That's the only place, if something's going to be a hit, that's where you're going to go to get on it, because otherwise you can miss it. Yeah. Whereas there's an infinite amount of inventory online. There's an infinite amount of programming. 
Um, and so there's a there seems to be an imbalance there, and I'm just curious from a um, just from a monetization point of view overall, um, how you guys view making money off short form content. If that's I, I, I think there's I think there's two ways that you'll make money on short form content, and the first is with everything that we've made online, we've been looking at ancillary markets from day one. Like when we did a day in the life, day in the life was made at 22 minutes. We knew we were going to we were creating that also to be sold off worldwide to traditional media outlets. So we started that on Hulu on Hulu.com, and then sold it around the world to TV mm -hmm. networks. Um, the show that we're doing right now, losing it with John Stamos, where John you know interviews all these celebrities about the first time they had sex. And then it's, you know, puppets and animated characters come in to reenact the moment of bliss, which is amazing. Um, Alan Cummings' first time is one of the greatest things you'll ever watch in your life. Um, but it's, um, but it's, but so now, so now this is being repackaged as half-hour shows, and now we're negotiating with two different networks here in the States to, to now bounce it off to networks in the States and then beyond internationally. Um, in terms of putting stuff online and making money while it's on air, the networks will most likely make money. And that's the thing is that the, there is a tremendous amount of content being made because people know they can make money. Um, it's, not a, it's not by happen chance now when you get on the subway, you're seeing all of these YouTube celebrities on, on, you know, with their 5.5 million followers, 5 million followers. There are people like them who are making a half million dollars a month making YouTube videos. I mean, they are seeing a tremendous upside by creating this. You know, Maker Studios wasn't bought by Disney because Maker doesn't make money. You know, Maker was bought for $550 million, one, because there is a huge group of eyeballs. Why? Because it's being curated. This is the next generation of content that you're going to see, because throwing it up is one thing, knowing that I'm getting trusted great docs that I can see, because the New York Times said they're great, or they're amazing sports movies, because ESPN has now put their stamp on them and said they're amazing, or Grantland. You're going to go to the place where you trust these shepherds to bring you content, and that's what Maker has done. And you're going to see even more of that. I mean, this is step one of a large curation process that's going to continue to push people out, but one that's going to become a real profit center, because what the web is becoming is the one channel that we've been promised forever. You know, over-the-top broadcasting, you know, the Rokus, the Apple TVs, mm -hmm. people cutting the cord. This is going to become the one tube that will go to your phone, to the television, to wherever, that will become the profit center, and everybody sees that. You know, it's interesting. We've also seen um, people who, who we, we have a, a premium on-demand service as well where you can charge money for content. Yeah. And one of the things that, that was kind of, has always been said, is that, well, nobody pays for short form, right? Nobody's buying a short film. It's all, you can't sell it on, on iTunes, for example. Um, but we're finding that's not true. I mean, and we're finding that, that, that folks who are creating, you know, even a 30-minute documentary about, you know, uh, trail running in, in mountains or, or a documentary about Sriracha, you know, and they put it up for five dollars, and and to your point, social media, they get it out. There's actually there's actually a market for that. That's right. You know, some of the folks who have stuff on YouTube, um, you know, you, you bring up a good point about you know the sort of top of the pyramid are the people that have you know 10 million followers, but but then there's sort of the rest of the pyramid, mm -hmm. right? Um, and uh, that they're beginning to sort of create longer pieces, um, and then just go to those using short form content to build an audience. That's right. Right and social to build an audience that they can then say, oh, and by the way, I'm also selling a book, or and by the way, you know, this one here is 40 minutes. It's really good. It will cost you three dollars, you know. And and now we've got to the place where you can sort of just put in your credit card and and, and go. Mm -hmm. I think the promotional value is very important for long form <coughs> filmmakers to think about shorts that are parallel works. Mm -hmm. And this is, I think, a big thing we've learned with OpDocs, like. Um, this week's film is by D.A. Pennebaker and, and Chris Hegedus. Hegedus? Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> um, it's part of a work in progress that won't be done for it could be quite some time. But they're able to launch a Kickstarter campaign the same day as the op doc to raise money to help finish that film. We also have a New York Times Magazine cover story going with it, so that's obviously going to help them. Yeah. <laughs> but um, monetizing a very short video, I think some people like Casey Neistat and the Gregory Brothers who we've worked with are, can monetize a channel, yeah. you know, but um, I don't think anyone should have delusions of making a five-minute video and getting rich off it. Mm -hmm. I think uh, maybe the opportunity is more for your greater career to show off what you're capable of doing. Yeah.
Well, I mean, and Kickstarter is an interesting yeah. example, too. It's, you know, if you had said to a filmmaker two years ago, your next project's going to be funded by you know, 2,000 strangers you've never met, <laughs> you know, they'd be like, but you're crazy. Um, you know, and, and that cycle of using the, the crowdfunding to build an audience, creating shorts to continue to build that audience, right? And then oftentimes there's then other forms of financing that, that, that come in, but you've got that base, Right, and that you could either bring with you to a, a channel, or you could actually start to, to sell against. Yeah. Um, are there, are there, for all of you, are there interesting uh, shorts um, or other venues for um, short form content online that that you guys are are excited about, or interested in, or paying attention to now, or think think we should know about? I'm not entirely sure what other venues. <laughs> where are you watching? Where, are you watching? where am I watching? Where are you going? Yeah. I mostly get forwarded stuff. I mean, the, yeah, stu the stuff that, I mean, I rely on aggregators. I rely on BuzzFeed to show me what's cool. I rely <laughs> on, true. Yeah, I rely on Dark Horizons to show me what are the cool trailers. <laughs> I'm just going through my top bar on Google Chrome right now. I, mean, <laughs> I do check Funny or Die every day. Um, it, it, that's sort of, ha there's just so much stuff out there. And I rely on, again, a tweet it's like yesterday, it, it was serendipitous. I was literally in a cab on my way home, and I just tweeted. I was like, "Is am I the only one who's having withdrawal from Brooklyn Nine-Nine? <laughs> and the next day, they released this viral video about how after Andy won the Golden Globe, everybody turned into prima donnas. I was like, thank you. <laughs> but it's I didn't. But I saw that in a, in a, in a retweet from somebody else. So yeah. I rely on other people to show me what's out there. And, and uh, I mean, again, I'm curious because there is so much stuff out there, right? Um, and uh, Twitter, BuzzFeed, I guess social in general, is that, I mean, is that generally where you guys Upworthy, get your... Upworthy, we have to mention. Mm -hmm. Upworthy, Upworthy, Upworthy right, yeah. Anything that gets picked up by Upworthy yeah. gets like several hundred thousand views on YouTube. I've always loved Vulture, New York Magazine's yeah. oh, website. Um, and I've done a couple of videos with them as well. Um, I think they have really smart, funny... You know, that's interesting, too, for a magazine to have the website take... And have they reduced the number of print issues they're doing at New York Magazine? I think they have. I think they, 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 yeah. They I live in L.A. now, so I'm a little out of touch. But, you want to um, hold on to your subscription? Yeah. No, I, I mean, I've been, like, a, a diehard vulture reader for a couple of years now, and... They've always been really supportive of my show, so I get... I think they did take the, the, the print down a bit as they yeah. put uh, online up. But online's been fantastic for it's them. It's been I fantastic. mean, they've been, they've been growing. Yeah, so time. for me, I, I, I check Vulture a lot. Um, you know, uh, I discover a lot of, like, people on Instagram. I love um, clothing, which is not related to this discussion at all, but I find myself trolling Instagram for new designers that I, you know, get excited about or, um, I, so for me, it's like, that's a platform to discover all kinds of things, um, fashion, film, photographers, you know, that, that, that's been really fun for me, um, because you can kind of get locked into your, like, you have those friends that email you all the time links or the websites you go to, but sometimes it's fun to just, like, go out there and, um, search out new people. Um, but yeah, I think, I think Vulture is awesome. Cool. Um, I think we have time for questions from the audience. If the audience has any questions they'd like to ask, right here up in the front. Thanks. Um, so we've had a, a really interesting few months in, um, in online content distribution. So um, you guys mentioned, so Maker Studios, we're seeing like YouTube has kind of taken a lot of the things that Maker's done and been doing them themselves. So these platforms that kind of at the beginning of um, online content distribution were these, you know, these broad platforms where anybody could do anything and they're not choosing sides. They're now starting to really court, you know, specific people and provide more resources or special advertising deals to, um, to specific content creators. Um, and then the second thing is kind of the, we're seeing like the death of net neutrality now and that these major content producers, the writing is kind of on the wall that, um, that you know, there's going to be exclusive deals with um, with the people that, that control the, the bandwidth. Um, 
so it, it looks like the direction of this could go that, um, you know, we, we're kind of in this golden age right now where there's all of these places you can get this broad distribution and, and that we could go back in this other direction where there's, we're going to end up with a few large platforms that you need to go to get distribution. And this, you know, so Morgan, like being able to own more than 50% of your content, that, that that's a thing that is today but will not be there five or ten years from now as these platforms um, start to control the bandwidth. Can you guys discuss kind of the direction that you see that going? Well, I mean, I think that what will happen is content creators will always be able to load a piece of their content no matter what you are. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who the bandwidth is or what it is, content is king. Like, if you are a content creator, um, it doesn't matter. If you are the brains behind the idea or whatever it is, like, J.J. Abrams is always going to own a piece of J.J. Abrams' content because he's J.J. Abrams. You know, and I feel like that, you know, there, there are certain content creators that you're always going to be able to make those deals. It's going to be harder for people when you come up, as it is for anyone, you know, on the heels of Super Size Me when we did the deal for 30 days and all of the projects we did after that. You own less, especially in the beginning, but as you continue to, to kind of have more success and find a greater foothold in the industry, you can claw your way to have greater ownership of your content. And that's what you're pushing for. And I think that what you'll start to see more of, and, and this is, you know, the writing's already on the wall for this, is going to be a subscription model for certain people. And as I, you know, I think you will see aggregators of like-minded content, whether it be sci-fi or whether it be dramatic or comedy, a la Funny or Die, where people who create this type of content will be able to go there, have extremely, you know, very lucrative, exclusive deals to create content for them because they already know they have the eyeballs, and it's valuable. They get to make what they want. They have a larger stake in the ownership. It's being curated by people who have a vision of what that is, and, and they have an audience, a built-in audience. Um, you know, I think that you'll still always want to go where you know people are watching content. You know, just because there are bigger places, you, you still want your stuff to be on, you know, a, an NBC or a CBS or or a CNN or or a or an ESPN because people watch those networks. And so I think the same thing will be as this just as the pipe just shifts, you're still going to want to go where people go. You know, the question is, can you drive people to smaller channels to watch things? And you can. It's still going to come down to marketing. It's going to be coming, coming down to advertising. It's going to come down to co-pro, you know, co-promotion. Right now, you know, we live in a world where there's so much, there's so much on the Internet that 99% of it is invisible. It's invisible. There's just no way to market it because there's just, there's just too much. And you're going to start to see more people get behind the promotion of certain content. Um, you know, there's giant buses driving down the street now with ads for Hulu shows. You know, it's, yeah. it's that, that's amazing. You know, and I think you're going to see more people who have, you know, these types of outlets advertising and marketing on a scale that rivals television. I think, and, and I'm taking my ESPN out, hat off just for a second, I think the difference is when you're dealing with the Internet, you're not talking about something that needs to be delivered to you through a box. I That's mean, right. And th there isn't 24 hours in a day. You don't need to type in channel 505. You don't need to t type in that. It's, it's infinite. So there is a bit of a democratization of all of this mm -hmm. that people will always, it's not to geek out again, but it's like Hydra. You cut off one head, five <laughs> more will grow back. That is essentially what the Internet is. Like one of these things pop up, someone's going to disrupt it. And that's what the Internet is. So... To Morgan's point, that's true. You're going to ultimately need to find these things, and you're going to need to have, have it stand out a little bit. But at least the internet gives you the freedom to try that. That's right. You're not sort of at the beholdens of how do I get onto that channel. You're on the internet. You're on the internet. So there, it, 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 I think it keeps everybody on their toes, which is, uh, from my point of view, great because I always want to be challenged. So challenge me. What? <laughs> back here. Hi. I first of all want to say I saw that Wilt Chamberlain as a bellhop short when it was in the festival, I think, last year. Last year. Fantastic short. I love – that was such a great story. I love that. Um, Thank you. You know, uh, you mentioned uh, earlier – I'm sorry, from OpDocs. I don't have my piece of paper in front of me. Uh, you mentioned earlier, and I know this subject has come up before, the idea that if you have short content – don't just put it out on your Vimeo page or on your YouTube channel because no, there. No, said YouTube. He didn't say Vimeo. He said don't put it on YouTube. I heard that specific. Well, no, no. I don't know what else. That's, I wasn't listening. No, no, no. In general, don't put stuff on YouTube. But in terms of releasing it to the internet before you've gone to the distribution channels, and in fact, there are some festivals that will not accept films that have been seen on the sure. internet. Now, that's great for people who've made those connections already and have access to some of those distribution channels. So the question I have for you guys is for those of us who are creating short content and are still trying to get our feet in the door with those distribution channels, do you have recommendations? I mean, because obviously if I make a great short film, I don't want to sit on it at home for three right. years hoping somebody will show it before I finally say to my friends, okay, great, I'll put it on my Vimeo page, which is where I put my stuff. Woo! 
Um, because I don't like YouTube commenters is 99% of the reason. Um, that's a whole other panel. That's a whole other. So I'm just wondering if you all have recommendations for those of us who are still trying to get our stuff noticed. What do you recommend as paths for getting the things seen and getting interest so that we can get to those distribution I channels? If you um, have festival aspirations, you should try to do the festival run in the hopes of first, yeah, first in the hopes of somebody that has money paying you to give it some life on television or on an online outlet that pays. And there aren't many of those. There's not many opportunities for for broadcast. Um, because well, it'll be interesting to hear your policies of, of work that's kind of world premiere status. With, with festivals, we had um, a piece in Sundance this year that had already been online for more than a year, so I, and I, I, you know, applaud Sundance for doing that. But there are some festivals that are less generous to to online premiere. Yeah, and um, probably if you're shopping it to like a broadcaster or like for us it's maybe a quirky policy of, of the whole uh, organization where we don't republish stuff so you're not going to find an article in the paper that's already been on some blog um, and same with the video everything has to be first but that's our policy and I'm curious if well the stuff that we develop is the same as 30 for 30 they're all work for hires so we develop, they're all original yeah they're all original we develop them with the filmmakers so it's we retreat so they're all world premieres when they hit outside of a festival run. So we, we don't really do a, uh, acquis- we don't do acquisitions. I, I think that I think that you hit the nail on the head is that ultimately is a smart, if you're making a short film, that the biggest thing for this is you do want to get a scene. You want to get a scene by as many people because you're ultimately you're not making this to make millions, you're making this to make your next film. That's what this this film should the begats the next film, begats the next film. That's what you want these short films to do. To kind of start a chain reaction. So yeah, I think you have to get it out. And in the, in the festival circus, as much as you can, build as much credibility. What film festivals do is they create credibility around your film. As, well, as you build every laurel around that movie, suddenly people are like, oh, it was here, it was there, it was at this film festival. You, know, it's, you, want, you want to kind of create this, era of, this aura of success around that film that will then lead to the next movie. And on the heels of it doing well and getting into festivals, send it everywhere. Send it to every festival you can, anybody. Digital festivals, uh, you know, theatrical festivals, big film festivals from Cannes, Sundance, down to you know, the smallest festival you can. All you want to do is get it seen, and and it the you know what sucks is it does start to get expensive now. I mean, like the the entry fees for festivals, even for shorts, it's costly. And you're making first you've made this big investment in your movie, and now you're having to continue to make this investment just to get it out there. But it's a it's a necessary evil, you know, to have to continue to pay money just to kind of get it seen because you need that to to move on in a lot of ways. And and for me, there's a light. I need closure in a project. Like, I need to feel like I'm done. And when it's like, when the lights go down and it comes up at a festival and people are seeing it, then it's like, part of, part of the time, I'm closing a couple doors because I know I can move on to, to other things. And, and you need that as a filmmaker. You need that as a creative person. So, uh, you know, you have to hound every possible place you can. Uh, we have time for one more question. You've had your hand up the entire time. Well, not the entire time, but when we started asking questions. Oh, okay. Thanks. So I uh, created a pilot of a web series, and it's gotten into two festivals, and I submitted it everywhere. Congratulations. Thank you. My question is, I, I'm an actor hyphenate, and um, I've been debating between after this, after I'm done with this sort of dealing with the festivals and then trying to shoot the rest of the season and post it online, and I've been debating between YouTube and Vimeo, and... And, like, I have it on... So the question for him. I have a let, me, let me finish the question. Let me finish the question. Because I have it on Vimeo right now privately because under the Sagna Media contract, you have to show it online before you can submit it to a festival because that's the new media contract. But with the private link, apparently you can get around some of those no premiere, thi- whatever. But... Um, and I know, like, that's more of the filmmaker choice and the side of more artistic people is to be on Vimeo. But... To get as more more eyeballs, it seems like you need to be on YouTube. And and if your goal is like I make films so I can act in them, and hopefully to get my acting career to take off. But you know, it's like so. so I'm wondering from your perspective because sure. I've never been able to talk to someone from Vimeo. Like what what are the advantages over well, one think, or the I other? Think, I think one of the challenges to get more eyeballs, you you to get more eyeballs in either of them, you need to get it out in front of more people. You need to get that link out. Right. I mean, I think you were talking about the Oscar-winning short that you saw that you watched on YouTube that had you know 12 people that have seen it. There's stuff that's hit 
Vimeo, it gets staff pick, and there's hundreds of thousands of people who've seen it, or, or even more. How do things get staff picked is an art in and of itself. We have an editorial group, and, and you could submit to them. And you can actually, I mean, I, I'm happy to talk to you after this, because you could, you could submit it right through me, um, uh, and I'll explain. But, but there's, also, um, there's also merit in putting it in both places. Um, and I think one of the things that I keep hearing from around, uh, from, from the panel is that you want to be everywhere, right? And especially, again, I understand the notion about being uh, uh, not republishing, if that's, if, if that's one of your goals. But you want to have it in front of as many people as possible, as many eyeballs as possible. Um, there are certainly quality differences and commenting differences and lots of things that, that, that we can talk about, uh, we can talk about offline. Um, if you want, uh, if it becomes something that you want to actually charge people money for, right? If you've not, now you've built an audience, right? Again, whether it's via crowdfunding, whether it's via social media, whether it's via online, um, and you know, and now you want to actually, you know, say, okay, this costs X. Um, you know, that's that is a feature and functionality that we have. In fact, we have a program for uh, filmmakers that have been through film festivals or have gone through crowdfunding, um, an audience development program where we can kind of contribute to some of those uh, marketing funds to get more people to see it. Um, and there's a there's a link right on the website. And again, just find me afterwards, and I'll I'll show you right where it is. Um, I think that's it. That's it. Right, is this to wrap it up? Um, <laughs> right. Thank you guys so much. Thank you guys you. were awesome. It was great. It was a lot. Thank you for having us.